Shalom. This is Mark Robinson, Executive Director of Jewish Awareness Ministries. Welcome to Jewish Awareness Podcast, a teaching ministry of Jewish Awareness Ministries. On Friday nights at our headquarters, we host a Bible study. Generally, we do verse-by-verse studies of different books of the Bible. Through the years, these studies have looked at the books of Isaiah, Ezekiel, John, and Hebrews. At times, we will have studies devoted to Jewish cultural events or issues relating to Israel and prophecy. These studies can be viewed live through the JAM Facebook live stream platform on Fridays. If you have questions or would like additional information, go to our website, jewishawareness.org. Email us at office at jewishawareness.org or call us at 919-275-4477. This information will be repeated at the end of the podcast. Enjoy the Bible study. So we start in John chapter 3 and verse 1. Uh, We've seen Jesus' first miracle at the wedding in Cana in the first Passover of Jesus' earthly ministry. Most recently, we've heard of Jesus being at Jerusalem. He was at Jerusalem for the Passover. It was there that we read for the first time that he goes into where the money changers are doing their business, and he turns the tables over, and he drives them out. And uh, he says in verse 16 of chapter 2, Take these things hence, make not my father's house a house of merchandise. And... um, So this is kind of where we pick it up. He's in Jerusalem still, I believe, based on the context. We're not told anything um, other than that. Um, So we're just assuming that that's where he is. So we come to a very familiar passage, John chapter 3, and let's look starting in verse number 1. John chapter 3 and verse 1. And it says, There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. The same came to Jesus by night and said unto him, Rabbi, we know that thou art a teacher come from God, for no man can do these miracles that thou doest except God be with him. So we're going to look at some things, trying to figure out who Nicodemus is. We see some things that happen with him later in Scripture that are very encouraging. Uh, We're not going to go into those now, but just kind of looking at the origins, the background of Nicodemus, because John chapter 3 and this conversation that Jesus has with him it's not like he's having this conversation with a Gentile. It's not like he's having this conversation with the average Jew in Israel in the first century. He's having this conversation with a very religious Jew who is, in fact, a ruler in Israel. And I found some interesting things that maybe you've never heard, and this is kind of speculation, uh, or speculation, as my pastor says. Um, but it's some neat, it's some neat uh, speculation. It's, you know, sanctified speculation, I guess, or something like that. Um, okay, so, <clears throat> a person, uh, in verse 1, a man of the Pharisees, most well-known enemies of what Jesus taught and what he promoted, his doctrine, his preaching, his teaching, Um, The Pharisees very much did not like what Jesus had to say. Now, it's interesting here, early on in John chapter 3, we see 
Jesus' encounter with a specific Pharisee. Um, Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews, one of the Sanhedrin, one of the Jewish political ruling bodies, okay, that they hear and make decisions and judgments based on the law. And so, you know, I mean, it's almost like this guy could have been an Apostle Paul or Saul, whereas he was very, very, very well-versed and ingrained in the law. And with all the teachings that the Pharisees had, you know, how many times in the New Testament does Jesus deride the Pharisees for their hypocrisy, for their holding up the traditions of men over, and we'll see that just very shortly here, I think, um, you know, many occasions where he let them have it because of their hypocrisy, because they should have known better. But we see something very interesting just in the fact that Nicodemus came to him. Jesus didn't go and, and find him and tell him, come and listen to me. Nicodemus came to see Jesus. And we see some things about Nicodemus's heart and his desire just in the fact that he came. Okay, now listen to some of this background. Possible background, okay, speculative background. A person of the name Nicodemus, the son of Gurion, okay, like David Ben-Gurion, like Ben-Gurion Airport, okay, it's the same name, Gurion. Gurion, Gur, like G-U-R, means lion cub in Hebrew. Whenever you see, it talks about, like in prophecies, da-da-da-da-da, lions and the young lions. The young lions uh, is uh, Guria or Guriot, and that's young lions, lion cubs. Anyway, I just figured, you know, that's, that's extra. But the brother of Josephus Ben-Gurion is mentioned in the Jewish writings. Okay, a guy named Nicodemus is mentioned in the, in the Talmud, who lived in the time of Vespasian. Um, Vespasian was, I think I have it written down here, yeah, 69 to 79 AD. Okay, so this is the first century, same time, time frame, um, about 30 years to 40 years, 40 to 50 years actually, after Jesus would have died and rose again. Um, and this is the time in which this according to legend, Nicodemus of the Jewish writings lived, and was reputed to be so rich, which does that go along with scripture? Well, if he was a noble, if he was a you know, ruler of Israel, he certainly would have had money. Um, he, he was reported to be so rich that he could support all the inhabitants of Jerusalem for 10 years. But this is said in their usual extravagant mode of talking. So, you know, there's lots of exaggeration, and you'll hear stories that are just kind of, um, you know, exaggerated, puffed up from what the truth is. But anyway, you could take this or leave it. I'm just going to share it with you. This is actually from the Talmud, Babylonian Talmud, which, by the way, there's two Talmuds. There's the Babylonian Talmud and there's the Jerusalem Talmud. Which one of those two would you think would be more reliable or widely used or widely held? Well, you probably think the Jerusalem, but it's the opposite. Okay, the Babylonian Talmud, as it's called, is like if people talk about the Talmud, they're referring to the Babylonian Talmud. And um, anyway, Ketubot 6.4. There was the case of the daughter of Nakdimon Ben-Gurion, ben okay? and that's just kind of the, the Hebrew or the Jewish way of spelling Nicodemus. Okay? Nakdimon Ben-Gurion, for whom sages allowed 400 golden dinars, like a denarius, the Roman... Uh, currency for her perfume basket for that one day 
And she said to them, may you do the same for your own daughters. And they answered her, so be it. It's crazy reading like things that aren't scripture. Like if you ever read anything from the Apocrypha, it's just like, it just doesn't, it doesn't sound right. It doesn't seem right. You read these Jewish writings and the traditions, they're not scripture. They're not God's word. They're the writings of men. And they're just kind of so, you know. Anyway, um, hard to grasp and just kind of don't make much sense. Okay, so. Uh, this is another one from the Talmud, the Babylonian Talmud, Mishta Tractate Gittin 5-6-I-5. There's like so many divisions between all these sections in the Talmud. He sent against them Caesar Vespasian, and he came and besieged Jerusalem for three years. There, there were in the city three nobles, Nakdimon Ben-Gurion, Ben-Kalbasuba, and Ben-Sisit Hakeset, Babylonian Talmud. And that's the, the reference there. So, and, and, and some of these are just kind of, I've removed them from the entire context because the entire context is like a page long and it's kind of confusing. But it's just saying that at this point in time, there was three main nobles. And what was Nicodemus? He was a ruler in Jerusalem, which is where we are in John chapter 3. Um, okay, now this is kind of crazy. Uh, um, this next one from the same section, just a little bit further down. Um, and I have a note there, Vespasian ruled Rome from 69 to 79. Just as the sun stood still for Joshua, so the sun stood still for Moses and for Nakdimon Ben-Gurion. While for Joshua there are verses in Scripture to indicate that fact, and while for Nakdimon Ben-Gurion there is a tradition, how do we know that fact in the case of Moses? And they go on to explain to why you know, they know that in reference to Moses. But they, they mentioned that, you know, apparently, according to their tradition, Nicodemus was a, a, this Nicodemus. Whether he's the Nicodemus of John 3 or not, I don't know. But it's kind of interesting to, to look at those things and realize that, according to their tradition, that there, there is a Nicodemus of the first century who was a very prestigious character. Now, how many of you like Nike? That's part of Nicodemus' name. Okay, now they take it from like the Greek god of, of victory, okay, Nike. But Nike is in the New Testament, okay? It's the word victor, it's the word victory, it's the word to overcome. We see that so many times in Scripture. Uh, thanks be to God who giveth us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. That's the word Nike. So it's not only just like, you know, the Greek god of victory or whatever, false god, but there's also the Greek word that's used in the New Testament. That's where Nicodemus' name comes from. Um, Nike, victor or conqueror, and then demos, the people. So Nicodemus means victor or conqueror of the people. Interesting. Okay, so why did, uh, why did Nicodemus come to Jesus at night? And you probably heard a couple of different, you know, reasons and speculation, there's that word again, as to why this timing is here. Um, verse number two, the same came to Jesus by night. Why did he come at night? Well, point number one, he was afraid of judgment from his peers, which is possible. I mean, the Pharisees and Jesus already are not off to a very good start. They have kind of a shaky relationship as far as that goes. Number two, 
He was too busy during the day. Well, somebody that's a, a ruler of the Jews, a member of the Sanhedrin, would have had a lot of stuff going on during the day. And then number three, Jesus was too busy during the day. Not necessarily Jesus was too busy, but he had a lot of people constantly following him, surrounding him. He had to purposefully get away and evade the crowds. So the answer is most likely the first and possibly the second and or third uh, influenced his timing as well. So it could be a combination of all three. We don't know. We know that we don't know. But um, just to kind of give you some possible scenarios there as to why he came at night. Jesus does not condemn him for this, so neither should we. There's people that I've heard, you know, talk about Nicodemus in John chapter 3, and he came to Jesus by night, and he's, and, you know, there's a lot of teaching out there within Christendom, okay, quote, unquote, Christianity, that is so anti-Semitic, and they'll take every single chance they can to just rip apart the Jewish people unjustly. Um, and so they'll say, well, Nicodemus, he didn't, he just, you know, he was one of those Pharisees, one of those hypocrites. He didn't want to be seen with, with Jesus, you know. And they'll, and they'll just, you know, give him a real hard time about that. And Jesus never brings that up. So uh, we definitely should not either. I mean, maybe he waited around for Jesus to be available. Who knows? We don't know. Um, okay. So in verse number two, Nicodemus says to Jesus, We know that thou art a teacher. Come from God, for no man can do these miracles that thou doest, except God be with him. Now, Rabbi, I think I talked about this before uh, at some point. Maybe I did, maybe I didn't. Um, rabbi comes from the Hebrew word rab. Okay? Like, you ever heard somebody say, Todah Rabbah, thank you very much? Okay? Rabbah, very much. Rab, very. Rabbi, great one, or master. Okay? So that's what Nicodemus is calling calling Jesus, Rabbi. No man can do these miracles that thou doest except God be with him. So what, what miracles is Nicodemus referring to? We'll look back on the previous page to John chapter 2. In verse number da, 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 23, okay, chapter 2, verse 23. Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover, in the feast day, many believed in his name when they saw the miracles which he did. Interesting. So, so far we have the miracle at Cana, okay, turning the water into wine, biblical wine, non-alcoholic, okay, in my perception. Um, am I getting into trouble? <laughs> but, um, so, but there's more miracles in that same chapter that aren't specified for us. They're just listed in the statement that many people at Jerusalem, at the feast day, at the Passover, they believe when they saw the miracles that he did. And then we find just a couple of verses later, I'm not sure what the time span is, but it's probably not that much longer, that Nicodemus comes to Jesus and says, no man can do these miracles that thou doest except God be with him. Maybe he was referring to the, the, the marriage feast at Cana. Maybe he was referring to the Passover miracles that Jesus did here listed in chapter 2 and verse 23. We don't know. It's one or the other. I, I, I tend to think that it's related directly to the Passover at Jerusalem, when Jesus did some miracles, we're told, and many believed on him that are, they're unspecified uh, what specifically they are. I believe that's what Nicodemus is referring to. Um, but it could possibly be the Cana one as well, also in John chapter 2. So 
Nicodemus comes to Jesus and he kind of has this kind of question. It's kind of open-ended. It's not really a question. I mean, we don't see a question there. He just says, we know that thou art a teacher come from God, for no man can do these miracles. Thou doest except God be with him. Nicodemus is interested. Nicodemus wants to know what Jesus' story is. He wants to know who Jesus is. He wants to kind of, you know, learn some things. And Jesus answered him in not in a way that anybody would today. Uh, nobody on TV, nobody in the news, nobody you know online would say anything like this. Jesus goes right to his heart, right to his need, and that shows what's important, and that shows what Jesus believes is important, which is what we should think about as well. There's so many things in this world that are um, not important, but what is important? Well, sharing the gospel, and that's exactly what Jesus do does here with Nicodemus. Um, and verse number three. And Jesus answered him and said unto him, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Jesus doesn't directly address Nicodemus' comment. Instead, only as he could, he pinpoints Nicodemus' need. So Nicodemus instantly has this question. Obviously, the way things progress is, well, how can you be born again? How is this possible? Jesus says, you must be born again. Except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus says, what? what is this? Verse 4, Nicodemus says unto him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter the second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, Except a man be born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. Now these verses have been so messed up and twisted and perverted by people in quote-unquote Christian Christianity, Christendom, okay, Roman Catholicism, branches of Protestantism, and others have taken this to uh, say you need to be baptized. You know, being born again is you need to be born of the water and born of the spirit. You need to be baptized uh, in order to be saved. Water baptism. And I'm going to show you some crazy quotes to prove this. Um, anyway, turn the page over. And uh, I wasn't so aware until I studied this passage, how many people widely hold this belief that is absolutely unscriptural? In a lot of commentaries, in a lot of scholarly work, quote-unquote scholarly, okay? Scholarly, not biblical. Uh, John Calvin, it is true that by neglecting baptism we are excluded from salvation, and in this sense I acknowledge that it is necessary. Boy, that's, that's pretty, you know, pretty severe. That's pretty crazy. Um, Augustine, or Augustine, depending on, you know, if you're one of those theologians that <laughs> wants to refer to things in a certain way. Um, it is this one spirit who makes it possible for an infant to be regenerated through the agency of another's will when that infant is brought to baptism. Unless a man be born again of water and the Holy Spirit, the water therefore manifesting exteriorly the sacrament of grace and the Spirit effecting interiorly the benefit of grace, both regenerate in one Christ, that man who was generated in one Adam. Oh, um, and, you know, he's one of the primary church fathers, quote unquote. Um, Boy, I seem to mention this every single time I teach. You guys need to pray for me. <laughs> I'm trying to write a book. 
And it's no further than the last time I asked you to pray for me about this book. But um, dealing with, actually I'm trying to write two books, both of which deal with the church fathers in one way or another. Um, Christianity has been given such a bad name, true Christianity. Jesus, the Messiah, has been given such a bad name in Jewish eyes because of guys like Saint, quote-unquote, Augustine, which if he believed what he preached, he was not saved at all, um, as well as others. Um, anyway, these are some of the things that, that come up. Um, did I ever tell you guys about, remember how, um, I mentioned a while ago what happened with my grandfather and how he recently passed away. Um, well, when I was talking to him, I think I was a teenager. It was not too long after I had gotten saved. And I was telling him the gospel, basically John chapter 3. And he said, what about these guys that, you know, they'll go and they'll kill people? in the mafia or the mob, you know, a lot of them are Catholic. And, um, you know, they would, they, they would commit all these heinous crimes and then, you know, on Sunday they'd go to Mass and they'd get forgiven. You know, or they'd go to a priest and say 20 Hail Marys and they get forgiven. And he was serious. He was asking me, how is that, you know, how does that work? How is that even possible? That's not right. And I said, Grandpa, they're not forgiven. That's not biblical. Only God can forgive sin. And I told them about Jesus being the only way. Um, but there's an example right there of stuff like this giving a Jewish mind the completely wrong perception of what the Bible teaches, the completely wrong perception of what you and I believe. Um, anyway, that's what one of the books is about. Anyway, trying to clear the air on all of those things to a Jewish audience. Um, okay. Catholics and Protestants agree that to be saved, you have to be born again. Jesus said so. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Okay, so this, this whole um, section, I must have not italicized that passage right there. I went to this like Catholic website, catholic.com, and there's a, tr there's a tract, Are Catholics Born Again? And this is written from a Catholic perspective, and so you're going to find out you know, right from them what they believe. And they use a lot of the same terms that we do, but they don't mean the same thing that we do. When a Catholic says that he has been born again, he refers to the transformation that God's grace accomplished in him during baptism. Evangelical Protestants typically mean something quite different when they talk about being born again. For an evangelical becoming born again often happens like this. And this is, this is a Catholic person talking about these things. He goes to a crusade or a revival where a minister delivers a sermon telling him of his need to be born again. If you believe the Lord Jesus Christ and believe he died for your sins, you'll be born again, uh, says the preacher. So the gentleman makes a decision for Christ, and at the altar, call goes forward to be led in, a sin in the sinner's prayer by the minister. Then the minister tells all who prayed the sinner's prayer that they have been saved, born again. But is the minister right? Not according to the Bible. <laughs> I just want you guys to know this, this is out there. Okay, and it's, it's, it's completely, totally erroneous. A lot of these people, both now and throughout history, and the church fathers, quote unquote, and so on, uh, they're unregenerate people. They don't have the Holy Spirit within them. They don't know how to read this book or interpret it, and um, they're, they're, they're wicked. You know, they're unsaved. They're lost. 
and they're trying to decipher God's word. It's, it's kind of crazy. Um, okay, born of water is not water baptism, but rather being born physically. This is in reference to the liquid environment of the womb. Verse 6 in conjunction with verse 4 makes this abundantly clear. If you let Scripture interpret Scripture, I mean, you don't need to look into anything else. Half the time, most of the time, the Scripture will interpret itself and give you the answer if you just look at the context. And I know Mark has talked about context, context, context. The three keys to interpreting Scripture. Um, and so, in verse 4, we read... Um, or I'm sorry, well, verse 4 as well, um, you know, um, womb is mentioned. Uh, can, a, can a man enter the second time in his mother's womb and be born? And then Jesus says, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. And here's the clarifying passage. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. You see, it's equating flesh with water. Born of the flesh, born of water. It's the liquid environment of the womb. And this is used elsewhere in Scripture as well. In the Old Testament, um, the womb is mentioned many times in dealing with physical birth. And um, it's kind of like a, a parallelism. And that happens a lot in Hebrew. You'll see it a lot in the book of Proverbs uh, where something is mentioned and then in the next line, probably in the same exact verse, in the next line, something else is mentioned that is parallel, okay, that is synonymous. And so we see born of water and born of the Spirit. And then the next phrase, next verse, a couple verses down, born of, born of the flesh, born of the Spirit. Born of water, born of the Spirit. And Jesus is equating the two as one and the same. Um, okay, so, physical birth, born of the flesh is flesh, that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Marvel not that I said unto thee, ye must be born again. Um, this is absolutely necessary. It's imperative. There's nobody that's going to be in heaven uh, that is not born again. You need to be born again to be saved. You need to be born of the Spirit of God. Um, the wind bloweth where it listeth, and thou hearest the sound thereof, but canst not tell whence it cometh and whither it goeth. So is everyone that is born of the Spirit. Now, what about the Old Testament saints? What about those before the time of Jesus? Well, we're going to get into that in a little bit here. So that's, that's down the line. Um, there was an Old Testament kind of equivalent. I don't want to say equivalent because it's not equal. Um, but an Old Testament, I guess, precursor to being born again. And that's why, in a couple of verses, we're going, to say, we're going to see Jesus talking to Nicodemus say, how in the world do you not know this? Yes. Absolutely. Class participation is encouraged. 100%. Mm -hmm. Yes. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Becoming spiritually alive. Yeah. We're spiritually dead until we're born again. That's what it means to me. So trusting Christ as Savior and Upon trusting him as Savior, you know, repenting from your sin, turning to him by faith, you become born again. Well, let me just go here. When you're referring to the, 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 um, the Catholic doctrine, 
Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, I know firsthand, and if, if this answers your, you know, question or, you know, um, I've made, I don't know how many false professions, okay, where I, where I was going through the motions, you know, say a prayer and you're, and you're going to be saved. And the Spirit of God was not involved in that. I had no sorrow or repentance over my sin. Um, it was just, you know, do this to feel good, you know, kind of thing. Um, and... I was just kind of searching for an answer, but not really finding it. One day, um, as a 15-year-old boy, God got a hold of my heart. I realized that I was lost. I realized that I deserved hell. And I said, God, I'm sorry. Save me. You know, forgive me. And I cried out to Jesus. And that was, you know, in the middle of the night at my friend's house in his, in his room. So, you know, and I got saved that night. I got born of the Spirit that night, that moment. And going through all these other motions, you know, exterior-wise, uh, didn't matter. And I had, um, there was a man, have you guys ever heard of Reformers Unanimous? It's kind of like an alcohol, um, you know, addiction program that a lot of churches have. Anyway, we had one in Pennsylvania, and I was talking to a man, and he had been in prison. He had had, you know, drugs. He had had al alcohol addiction, all this other stuff. And I was trying to talk to him about the Lord, and he was, he was beginning to understand the gospel, but he was very aware of the trap of just doing what I say to do it, because he had been through, I don't know how many 12-step programs, you know, looking for this, that, or the other thing, and he did not want to go through the motions. He did not want to do something just insincere, you know, just to make me happy. And it took a couple of weeks, I think, to the point where he called me and he's like, he's like, Dan, I got saved. And um, his pastor called me because uh, he had been attending a church about a half an hour away. And the pastor said, I want to thank you for not rushing him through the sinner's prayer just to get another, you know, check mark. Um, if, the, if the Spirit of God does not move and convict and do that, um, then, you know, if we can do things through the flesh, and it's going to get us nowhere. Absolutely, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
Yep, yep. I understand. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, it, I think the stress of, of, of what we've been talking about here and the stress of what Jesus is teaching is it's, you know, be born of the Spirit, not be born of this denomination or that denomination or, 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 or this sermon, you know. It's the Spirit of God that has to do it. Um, and I think we'd all agree with that, and that happens at altar calls, that happens at church meetings, that happens in bedrooms, that happens, you know, on the cross. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. 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 Mm. Yeah. Preacher schools, yeah. Yeah. And Yep, yep. It has to be God that does it. Did you have a comment, Alan? Exactly. Exactly. He's de he's demeaning the evangelist and the altar call. That's. Amen. Amen. Absolutely. Yep, yep, absolutely, absolutely. So, so to say you must be baptized or you must come to an altar call is not biblical. Yep. Now, I agree with you, you certainly can be saved if that's the way God calls you and if that's the way it happens. In those circumstances, but it's not. Yes. Absolutely, absolutely. You know, you don't have to be in those situations. I was a leader in a Lutheran youth group for two years before I got saved, okay? My pastor in Clayton, he was a member of a local Baptist church here for three years before he got saved, 
I've heard of pastors getting saved. You know, it happens because it's not just something that we do. It's not going through the motions. It's not taking on a label. It's not like me for the first 15 years of my life. I called myself a Christian. I figured I was because I called myself one. So, but yes, this, this example here from this Catholic tract is a Catholic person saying it's not like the evangelicals say. And so that's not my point of view. That's the Catholic's point of view. I'm sorry if that was confusing there for a minute. Okay. Any other comments and questions at this, at this stage of the game? This is good. Yes, and that's, that's wonderful. Well, it was amazing. I was just flabbergasted looking this up, seeing reference after reference after reference of this is baptism that Jesus is talking about. It's crazy. Do you have a comment, Ken? And it's, you know, there's differences for a lot of different people, you know, how they react in those things. The important thing is that you know by faith that you trusted Christ and that he saved you, you know. Um, absolutely. Okay. All right. So where in the world were we? Okay. So um, verse number eight. Okay, Jesus says this, The wind bloweth where it listeth, and thou hearest the sound thereof, but canst not tell whence it cometh or whither it goeth. So is every one that is born of the Spirit. He's saying that, you know, the wind is invisible, but you see the leaves rustle. You know, you hear the sound of it, you know, blowing through the trees, but you don't see it visibly. He said, so is everyone that's born of the Spirit. It's not going to be something that you can, you know, everybody that's saved has a red hat. <laughs> you know, instantly. That's not how it works. And what's really kind of interesting here is, and I have this, I think, the next thing here, um, that the Greek word for wind, pneuma, which is where pneumonia comes from, okay, or pneumatology, study of the Holy Spirit. Um, I had a, any, do we have any paintball players here? Anybody's ever played paintball? Okay, I had a paintball gun uh, from Tipman Pneumatics. It's because it's air-powered, CO2-powered. That's pneuma means wind or spirit. And the Hebrew word ruach, the spirit of God hovered on the face of the waters, okay? Ruach is also wind and spirit, both, okay? Um, and so Jesus making this, this analogy here is, is, is kind of interesting um, as well. Not only gives us a practical understanding of what, you know, being born of the spirit isn't something that's visibly seen, um, but it is, you see the effects of it, you see a changed life, 
you see the Lord living through that person. You see that that person is a new creature in Christ um, from, the out, from the inside out. Um, and Nicodemus answered and said unto him, how can these things be? You know, you can just see Nicodemus kind of scratching his head. Um, and so, verse 10, we come to um, diving into the background of what Nicodemus should have known. Okay? And Mark has mentioned these things. A number of these uh, verses are in Ezekiel, uh, as well as a couple other passages. And this is not an exhaustive list um, by any means. Yes? Sure. Okay. I would say that the stress of the, the John passage, and this is just my point of view, um, but that it has to do with being born of the Spirit isn't a visible change. Um, but you can see the effects of that inner change in a person's life. Um, as far as uh, what you're saying, I don't as much see the connection to that train of thought. Um, but, but I understand what you're saying, though. Okay, so... Jesus answers Nicodemus, and he says, Art thou a master in Israel, and knowest not these things? You, know, you, you remember Mark referring to a new heart or a circumcised heart, okay? This is what Nicodemus should have been aware of. A circumcised heart was the Old Testament equivalent of being born again. This was not the same thing, okay? Uh, it was a heart surrendered to the Lord. If you can, if you can think about and this is, this is just my point of view, my experience, okay? If you can remember what it was like when you got saved, do you remember what it was like, like just before you got saved and your heart was turning towards God? For an Old Testament saint, okay, somebody before Christ came and died for their sins, before the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, because back in, the, in those days, the, the Spirit of God came uh, upon somebody to perform some act of service for the Lord, to empower them, but it didn't indwell them like he does now. So to kind of get, maybe it's a poor analogy or a poor illustration, but a, a feeling for what it would have been like for an Old Testament saint to, to have a circumcised heart, because Moses commands them, you have to have your heart circumcised. He wouldn't have commanded them something that was not possible to have been done. Um, although there are prophecies about God giving you a new heart and a new spirit, and I believe those are prophetic referring to being born of the Spirit, being born again. But there is this Old Testament concept of having a circumcised heart, a heart that is right with God, a heart that is 
desiring to be connected with God, although that person is still dead spiritually. That person is still, um, you know, not spiritually alive. And it's, it's hard for us to understand or grasp, and we really can't because we're not at that stage anymore. Uh, the Holy Spirit has come. He will indwell anybody that gets saved and born again and seals them with that Holy Spirit of promise. But back in the Old Testament days, the closest thing that you had was somebody that was believing the Lord and having a heart towards the Lord, a heart for the Lord. Um, okay, so like for instance, I have a bunch of verses here written down. Uh, and put a, put a bookmark or something in John chapter 3, we'll be back. Turn over to uh, Psalm 51. Psalm 51. This will give you kind of an example of this idea. Not as much of a teaching or a discussion, but an example. Psalm 51, what's Psalm 51 about? David's repentance. After he sinned with Bathsheba and Nathan the prophet came to him and said, Thou art the man, and he turns to God and he beseeches God for mercy. And then Psalm 51 was written uh, at that time. And let's look at verses number uh, 1 through 10 just real quickly here. Have mercy upon me, O God, according to thy loving kindness, according to the multitude of thy tender mercies, bought up my transgressions. This is, this is somebody that is desiring to have a circumcised heart. Okay, He was in sin for I don't know how long, unrepentant, in dealing with you know, Bathsheba and those things that he did with Uriah, uh, Bathsheba's husband. Um, wash me thoroughly from mine iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I have acknowledged my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against thee and thee only have I sinned and done uh, this evil in thy sight. Um, okay, go down to uh, verse number 7. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Make me to hear joy and gladness that the bones which thou hast broken may rejoice. Hide thy face from my sins and blot out all mine iniquities. Look at this verse. Create in me a clean heart. Okay, David is, is, is beseeching the Lord to create in him a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. And then look at verse number um, 11. Cast me not away from thy presence and take not thy Holy Spirit from me. Okay, so the Holy Spirit of God was upon David to be the king of Israel, to be the ruler of Israel. And David here is, is, is praying for the Lord to not take away his spirit from David, as he has others in the scripture. The Spirit of the Lord came upon Samson for a couple of times. The Spirit of the Lord came upon Saul and departed. Um, and so David here is, in a different time, the Holy Spirit is not indwelling believers, and uh, he's not born again, but he's desiring to have that right relationship with God, that clean heart. That's how an Old Testament saint was saved, by faith. Uh, Abraham believed God, it was accounted unto him for righteousness. Okay, um, Okay. back to John chapter 3. Um, okay, so now I have these references here, and they're all written out for you. Some verses about having a circumcised heart, okay, or a new heart. Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 16 says, Circumcise therefore the foreskin of your heart, and be no more stiff-necked. All the way back in Deuteronomy. This isn't even in, you know, the, the prophets. This is all the way back in the Torah. In Deuteronomy, Jeremiah 4.4, 4, circumcise yourselves to the Lord and take away the foreskins of your heart. 
ye men of Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem, unless my fury come forth like fire and burn that none can quench it because of the evil of your doings. Jeremiah 31, verse 33, 34. But this shall be the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days, saith the Lord. I will put my law in their inward parts and write it in their hearts and will be their God and they shall be my people. And he shall teach no more every man his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord. For they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest of them, saith the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity I will remember their sin no more. Okay, this is, this is the new covenant. Jesus said, this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many. Okay, and it's what Jeremiah is referring to, but here it's a prophecy about when Israel nationally accepts Jesus as their Messiah. Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10. When they see him whom they have pierced uh, and weep for him, over him. But those same promises are the promises um, of the new covenant. Knowing the Lord personally having forgiveness of sins, and having his law in your heart, which is kind of you know, analogous to this, the indwelling of the Spirit, um, guiding us into all truth and uh, you know, teaching us of uh, you know, conviction of, of sin and righteousness and judgment. Ezekiel 11, I will give them one heart and will put a new spirit within you and will take the stony heart out of their flesh and will give them a heart of flesh that they may walk in my statutes and keep my ordinances to do them and they shall be my people, and I will be their God. And then the next page, I got a couple of pages here. I got a lot of references. But as for them whose heart walketh after the heart of their detestable things and their abominations, I will recompense their way upon their own heads, saith the Lord God. Aren't you thankful that we have the Spirit of God? I mean, what would it have been like to have been alive in this point in time where there was no... I don't know, as far as I can tell, assurance. You know, in, in, in Romans it says that the Spirit of God testifies with our spirit that we are the children of God. They didn't necessarily have that in the Old Testament time. They didn't have the Holy Spirit of God, you know, just moving in their life and in their heart. Um, I'm just so thankful that we have the Holy Spirit today indwelling us and sealing us. Um, something we take for granted quite often. Um, Ezekiel 36, a couple verses here. Then I will sprinkle clean water upon you, and you shall be clean from all your filthiness and from all your idols. I will cleanse you. A new heart also will I give you, and a new spirit will I put within you. And I will take away the stony heart out of your flesh, and will give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you. Amazing. And cause you to walk in my statutes, and you shall keep my judgments and do them. Now, for those of you that are paying attention to this outline, I skipped a couple of verses completely accidentally. So I have them here for me, okay, but verses 11 through 13 are missing from your outline. So if you have a pen or pencil, you could take some notes and fill in where that gap is there. Um, but Jesus says to, to Nicodemus in verse 10, um, how do you not know these things? What I'm telling you about being born again, being born of the Spirit, is not an entirely new concept. It's something that you should be aware of, especially being a master and a ruler in Israel, um, knowing the Torah, knowing the law, knowing the prophets. Um, he should have known better than to be so perplexed, scratching his head, asking how is this possible for a man to be born again when he was old in his mother's womb. Um, okay, so verse 11. Verily, verily, I say unto thee, we speak that we do know and testify that we have seen and ye received not our witness. If I have told you earthly things and ye believe not, 
How shall you believe if I tell you of heavenly things? And then verse 13, And no man hath ascended up to heaven, but he that came down from heaven, even the Son of Man which is in heaven. These are amazing verses. So often when we get into like John chapter 3, we'll hear somebody preach about John 3.16, or maybe John 3.7, where it says you must be born again. But everything else is, is, is just as amazing and just as eye-opening and wonderful truth um, here in John chapter 3. So, Jesus says to Nicodemus, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, We speak that we do know and testify that we have seen, and ye receive not our witness. There's some interesting things here with pronouns, okay? It's plural. We, we, ye, ye, okay? Um, if you notice in the scripture, and if you have a newer version, it probably says you, you receive not our witness. Um, back in olden days, um, as there is in Hebrew and as there is in Greek, English, back in olden days, had a form of singular you and plural you. And they had it for like a subject or an object. So we get thee and thou and ye and you. And now we just have you, 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 and you. But it opens up our eyes on some things that we might not other, otherwise see that are actually in the original language as far as plural or singular, referring to ye. So he says, um, we speak that, that we do know and testify that we have seen and you receive not our witness. Who is, who is Jesus talking about? Now, I'm going to tell you my interpretation of this passage and what I believe, and you're, you're welcome to be, I don't want to say you're welcome to be, be wrong. <laughs> I've heard that phrase so many times, that just almost rolled off my tongue. You're welcome to, uh, to believe differently, but this is my perspective, okay? Um, at first glance, we would look at this and we would think, oh, well, this is, this is the Trinity, you know, and he's referring to the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. I don't believe that that's what it's referring to. I believe that it is Jesus speaking for himself and his followers, okay, those that have trusted Christ so far, those that have become born again, uh, the disciples. And so, um, and then when he says ye, he's not referring to just Nicodemus. Ye is plural. Ye receive not our witness. Who's he talking about? Well, specifically probably the Pharisees, okay? Um, and this, this, this here, it, it, it echoes um, John chapter 1 and verse 11. So turn over a page or two to John chapter 1 and verse 11. Speaking of the word, Jesus, it says, He came unto his own, and his own received him not. But as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God. Uh, Israel as a nation, and the, and the Pharisees specifically, definitely, I believe, are what's being referenced. So Jesus is saying, we, we testify, we speak that we do know, and testify that we have seen, and you receive not our witness. Is he speaking about Nicodemus specifically? Well, maybe because Nicodemus is having a hard time, you know, swallowing what Jesus is teaching. He's having a hard time grasping and, 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 and believing it. But I think even broader than that, the Pharisees in general, as a group of people, they didn't, want it. they didn't want it. They didn't believe it. They didn't want to have anything to do with what Jesus was teaching. And so that's my perspective on this verse that Jesus is talking about we as in myself and my followers and ye as in the Pharisees and the unbelieving Jewish people that are rejecting Jesus and not receiving his witness. Um, and then he says, no man hath ascended up to heaven, but he that came down from heaven, even the Son of Man, which is in heaven. 
Now, there's an interesting passage. If you keep your finger there in John chapter 3 and turn over to Proverbs chapter 30. Proverbs chapter 30. If I would have had this in here, um, after I had printed them all out, I realized that I didn't have <laughs> those verses listed in there. Otherwise, I would have tried to fit it in. Um, Proverbs chapter 30. A couple of different verses that I want to, to turn here to. I'm not sure where I'm going to get tonight as far as time goes, but we'll see. If there's any discussion or questions or comments, that's, that's encouraged. That's not only welcome, it's encouraged. Okay, so Proverbs chapter 30, verse number 4. And if you notice, this is the verse that we have written in our, our entryway there uh, at the front door. Who hath ascended up into heaven, or who hath descended? Who hath gathered the wind in his fist, who hath bound the waters in a garment, who hath established all the ends of the earth? What is his name, what is his son's name, if thou canst tell? Uh, the answer is, is, is obviously God, Jehovah, the creator. What is his name and what is his son's name? And we've seen so many times throughout the past couple of lessons, and uh, I have a whole lot more, and you're probably going to hear a lot of it in the book of John. The deity of the Messiah. The Messiah is God. The Messiah is the God of Israel, the creator in human flesh. Um, the Word was with God and the Word was God. There's not three gods, there's one. Um, and, and three persons. So, um, Jesus says here, um, No man hath ascended up to heaven, but he that came down from heaven, even the Son of Man which is in heaven. Boy, I mean, if Nicodemus wasn't kind of confused already, you know, just hearing that, I'd kind of be like, what? Can you say that again, please? Uh, because there's a lot to, to, to take in in this statement. Um, the context here is verse 12. He says, if I told you earthly things and ye believe not, how shall you believe if I tell you of heavenly, thing, heavenly things? Jesus is trying to tell Nicodemus about what? being born again, being born of the Spirit. This is, a, this is a heavenly subject. This is a spiritual subject, a spiritual matter. And Jesus is trying to get him to understand with the idea of physical birth. He's trying to get him to understand with the idea of the wind. Um, and, and, and Nicodemus is still having a hard time. And we've seen that in verse number 11, Jesus mentions you, you as a group, okay, ye plural, receive not our witness. And he says... Um, how will you believe, uh, if I told you earthly things and you believe not, how shall you believe if I tell you of heavenly things? No man hath ascended up to heaven, but he that came down from heaven, even the Son of Man which is in heaven. The application of verse 13 is, I, Jesus, have the authority to tell you about spiritual things. I've not only been there, but get this, try and wrap your mind around this, I am there. Because he's God. And this is one of those things that's hard. It's, it's hard for us to grasp. Like it's hard for us to entirely grasp the idea of the Trinity. Okay? Um, I'm a father, a son, and a brother. <laughs> I mean, we have these like, you know, poor illustrations or poor comparisons to try and get a, our minds around the idea of the Trinity. And it doesn't even begin to scratch the surface of what the Trinity is and means. The same thing when you try and think of eternity. Okay? We can, we can partially try and have the idea of, of, of something with no end. But then when we try and think of no beginning, it's like our mind just blows up and we can't, we can't understand it. We can't grasp it. But Jesus is saying, no man hath ascended up into heaven, but he that came down from heaven, okay? Jesus came down from heaven to be born as a baby in a manger, 
of a virgin, take on human flesh, live a perfect sinless life, and die for the sins of the world. But he also ascended up into heaven. And just the, the order of things are different than you would expect. You would think, you know, descended, ascended, or you would think in heaven, then descended, then ascended, but it's all mixed up. And Jesus is trying to get Nicodemus to understand, I'm not just a man, okay? And the idea of the Son of Man, okay, um, is in Scripture. Um, not only in Ezekiel, in reference to, to Ezekiel, but in Daniel, in reference to deity. And the Ancient of Days giving his authority to Son of Man. Um, anyway, so there's a lot here for Nicodemus to swallow, a lot here for Nicodemus to understand, a lot for us to try and get our minds around. And if we think that we're going to be able to entirely, completely, and totally do it, we're probably going to fall short. Um, I have a couple of references here. Um, let's see. John chapter 1, and turn over to verse 18. John chapter 1 and verse 18. This is kind of an echo of, what, of, of verse number 13 in John chapter 3. Verse number 18 in John chapter 1. No man hath seen God at any time, the only begotten Son, which is in the bosom of the Father, he hath declared him. So here we get a reference in John chapter 1 verse 18 of the only begotten of the Father, the Son, being in presently at the time that that was written in the bosom of the father now we get an even more clarified passage in john chapter 14 if you don't uh, want to turn there i'll just read it i'm going to read you a couple of verses in john chapter 14 starting with verse number seven this is um jesus here and uh speaking to his disciples, and he says in verse number 7, If ye had known me, ye should have known my Father also, and from henceforth ye know him, and have seen him. Philip saith unto him, Lord, show us the Father, and it sufficeth us. Just, just show us the Father, and it will be enough. Jesus saith unto him, Have I been with, with you so long time, and yet hast thou not known me, Philip? He that hath seen me hath seen the Father. How saith thou then, Show us the Father? Believest thou not that I am, what's the next word, in the Father, and the Father in me? The words that I speak unto you, I speak not of myself, but the Father which dwelleth in me, he doeth the works. Believe that I am in the Father, and the Father in me, or else believe me for the works' sakes. Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that believeth on me, the works that I do, shall he do also, and greater works than these shall he do, because I go to my Father. So here we see Jesus discussing with his disciples, and Philip specifically, don't you believe that the Father is in me and I am in the Father? If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. I and my Father are, are one, Jesus said in John chapter 10. Um, and so we need to understand that there's so much, and you can try and get your mind in gear now because it's going to need to get, get rolling here. In, John in, in the book of John, all throughout the book of John, we deal with the subject of Jesus is God. Um, and it's one of the reasons that um, I love teaching from the book of John. Just that aspect is just so prevalent in all of these chapters. Um, okay. 
Um, do we have any questions or comments so far until we move into the next verse? Verse number 14, which is the background of John 3.16. Okay? All right. So, let's read real quickly here verses number, well, we'll start with verse 14. And then we're going to turn to numbers. Okay. I don't think we're going to get quite through. We'll see. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Numbers 21, 4 through 9. And again, if you guys um, don't want to turn there, I'll just read it. But you can turn as well. Numbers 21, if you like. And verses number 4 through 9. Numbers 21. I just find it incredible that John 3.16, which is perhaps the most widely known, widely quoted, widely used verse from Scripture in all of the world, people don't realize, to give you some context here, Jesus said, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. But who was he talking to when he said that? A Jew. And so those that try and completely just exclude the Jews from evangelism, from outreach, from you know, praying for Israel, all these different scriptural commands, uh, replacement theology. Um, you know, if you've grown up in a church where the Jewish people aren't really talked about much or the Jewish context of scripture isn't really emphasized or even mentioned, um, I know that I had been in, you know, heard messages before going through John chapter 3 that are just, you know, giving you the idea that it's a Gentile situation, you know, just apart from the Jewish context. And the Jewish context is so huge in John 3.16. It goes all the way back to Numbers, chapter 21, verse 4. And they journeyed from Mount Hor by the way of the Red Sea to compass the land of Edom. And the soul of the people was much discouraged because of the way. And the people spake against God and against Moses. Wherefore have you brought us up out of, the, out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no bread, neither is there any water. And our soul loatheth this light bread. And the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, and much of Israel died. Therefore the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against thee. Pray unto the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. And Moses prayed for the people. And the Lord said unto Moses, Make thee a fiery serpent, and set it upon a pole. And it shall come to pass, that when every one that is bitten, when he looketh upon it, shall live. And Moses made a serpent of brass, and put it upon a pole. And it came to pass, that if a serpent had bitten any man, when he beheld the serpent of brass, he lived. This is the context that we find of John 3.16. Not only is the context all the way back in the Torah, okay, one of the books of Moses, but Jesus is trying to explain this to Nicodemus, who would have been very familiar with this story. And so I want us to kind of detach for a minute from, I don't know, if we have a different kind of upbringing in different churches where the Jewish context is not emphasized. I, I haven't been in many churches where it, it, sadly, where it has been in my lifetime. Usually it's kind of just skipped over. Maybe it's mentioned just in passing. Um, but Jesus talking to Nicodemus he says, just as, in verse 14, 
as Moses lifted up in the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. And what Jesus is about to tie in together is being born again with trusting in Jesus, just like those in the wilderness, you know, they looked at the serpent that Moses had set up as God commanded them to, and they were healed, they were saved, they did not die. Um, and so you can see that as Jesus is talking to Nicodemus, his desire is for Nicodemus to understand this and to trust Christ. And how amazing is it? And this is just, you know, a bit of a flash forward here, but we see two people going to beseech for the body of Jesus after he had been crucified. Who are those two people? Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea. Can you imagine this conversation playing through Nicodemus' mind when he sees Jesus on the cross and how Jesus said the Son of Man must be lifted up just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness. Um, okay. And, and, and just previous to this, in, uh, in, in verse 19 of chapter 2, uh, we see Jesus um, prophesying of his resurrection. <clears throat> Destroy this temple in three days I'm going to raise it up. Nicodemus may have been there in that crowd to hear those things that Jesus said. Um, okay, so, verse 15, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Okay. I'm going to try and go into a excursus on life and death. I had a seminary professor that who said he was going to go into a, a Sabbath excursus. And it's kind of like a theological excursion. It's a fancy word for a rabbit trail. Um, at this point, because of what's talked about, everlasting life, not perishing, what does life and death mean scripturally? Um, and it, you know what we see in John chapter 3, verses 14 through 16, is the antidote for what we read in John chapter or in Genesis chapter 2, verses 16 and 17. I have it right there. Way back in the garden, the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden thou mayest freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil thou shalt not eat of it. For in the day thou eatest thereof thou shalt surely die. What does this mean? And I guess in the time that we have remaining, um, I'm going to go through some of these references and the biblical teaching and understanding on life and death, because I think this is a very good instance to try and understand this concept biblically. And uh, sadly, a lot of churches don't, don't teach this. Um, and it's a very Jewish concept. Back in Deuteronomy chapter 30, okay? Um, and this will be the last passage that we turn to tonight. Deuteronomy chapter 30. Okay, so Moses is talking to the children of Israel about following the law of God, about following God's law. And in this chapter, God uses Hebrew parallelism to show what he means by life and death. Uh, just as I mentioned, Jesus talking about being born of water, being born of the flesh in a parallel fashion, it's a, it's a Hebrew concept, it's a Hebrew uh, grammatical structure in order to get a point across. Moses does the same thing here. Um, interestingly enough, in verse number uh, 15. Look at um, Deuteronomy chapter 30 and verse 15. 
Moses says, see, I have set before thee this day life and good, death and evil. Uh, verse number 16, in that I command thee this day to love the Lord thy God, to walk in his ways, to keep his commandments and his statutes and his judgments, that thou mayest live and multiply, and the Lord thy God shall bless thee in the land whither thou goest to possess it. But in verse number 17 uh, and 18, it talks about a curse and surely perishing. Uh, verse number 19, I call uh, heaven and earth to record this day against you that I have set before you life and death, blessing and cursing. Therefore, choose life that thou mayest live. Um, okay, so life and death, I may have said this before, but we're going to go into kind of a somewhat in-depth view of what it means biblically to have life and what death means biblically, okay? Um, in Genesis chapter 2, and you have those verses right there um, listed, Genesis chapter 2, verses 16 and 17, where God told Adam that the day that thou eatest of this tree, thou shalt surely die. What does that mean? Okay, well, here's four different, um, four different views of what it means when God said, thou shalt surely die. Four different views for death. Uh, letter A, spiritual death. They died spiritually as soon as they ate. B, physical death, stressing mortality. If you become mor you will become mortal if you eat the fruit. You'll begin to decay. You'll begin to die. Uh, letter C kind of goes along with that, the decaying process. Okay, as soon as we are uh, conceived, basically our body starts breaking down slowly but surely. Um, and it's, 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 it's unbelievable how that happens. And we have the fall, we have sin to thank for that process. Um, the above views all have truth to them, but it's probable that this is speaking of separation from the blessings of Eden, the presence of God. Very frequently, the Old Testament, New Testament, life and death terminology has to do with the fullness of experience of fullness of... Uh, wait, is that kind of a crazy statement? <laughs> the, the, the blessing of experiencing the fullness of God's presence. Where God's presence is, there is life. And what happened to Adam and Eve? Well, a number of things. When they ate of that fruit... They were cut off from God spiritually. They died spiritually. They began to decay. Their bodies became mortal. They began to literally die. And as a result, they were kicked out of Eden, out of the presence of God. And so that's kind of a threefold thing. But death, in general, speaks of the, the, the cutting off, the separation from God. Okay? Um, it would also foreshadow being cut off from the tabernacle and the temple. The temple represents God's presence. Eden is full of symbols that represent the presence of God. In Israelite worship, true life was experienced when they came to the sanctuary. For the Israelite to enter the sanctuary was to enter the fullness of life. To enter the sanctuary is to be in the life realm. To be expelled from the sanctuary was to enter into the death realm because you were being cut off from the truest form of life. This is why lepers were told to mourn when they are expelled, excommunicated from the fullness of life associated with normal life and temple worship. So back in the Old Testament time, under the law, people would be cut off from Israel for committing certain crimes or for having certain diseases or for doing certain things. And when it says being cut off from Israel, that can literally mean two things. It can mean you're executed, and it can also literally mean that they were a form of excommunicated from the community, that they could not any longer participate in corporate worship um, with, you know, the Levitical law and what God had given them to do. And the two were so intertwined 
okay, that they figured if they couldn't participate in that, if they couldn't, you know, try and be connected to God in some way, they might as well be dead physically. They might as well be in the grave. And that's why when we look into, and I, I got a ton of references here. We're just going to skim through them, but these are for you to take home as well. A ton of references about life and death, um, specifically life. But when we look into the New Testament, we're going to see a whole bunch of things that follow this train of thought. We're going to see that being uh, alive, having a pulse, okay, does not make you have life. Okay, and so there's medical terminology and then there's biblical terminology. And we're so used to this medical terminology, oh, I, I, I died on the table, <laughs> you know? Um, different things like that that, that are not a, a biblical reckoning of life and death. Somebody can be alive physically. I was alive for 15 years physically before I became alive spiritually. I was spiritually dead. I didn't have life. And so as we look through some of these passages, I just want us to get a feeling because it, it means so much in what Jesus said that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, okay? Not have death, but have eternal or everlasting life. Um, how many of you have ever heard of like Lachaim, okay, when they, you know, in like Fiddler on the Roof or when some Jewish people will toast, you know, a drink? Oh, I'm getting back to the alcohol thing again. <laughs> but they, they would toast by saying Lachaim, which is to life, okay? The, 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 the Hebrew word for life is chai, okay, like you're saying hi to somebody, but you're clearing your throat in the same breath. <laughs> and the Hebrew concept of life was not just having a pulse. And guess what? The entire Bible... Old Testament, New Testament, or as Mark likes to refer to it, and I'm becoming very fond of this as well, later scriptures, earlier scriptures, okay? The entire thing was written by Jews. Even though it was written in Greek in the New Testament, they had a Hebrew mindset. They have Hebrew concepts, Hebrew idioms, Hebrew grammatical structure, and uh, when they're referring to life and death, they're not referring to like, I don't know how the Greeks viewed it, but you know, out of the Greeks came a lot of you know, medical and scientific thinking and advancements and things. Um, but biblically, life and death is something very different than what we think of when we think of life and death. Um, okay. Let's start. And we got a couple minutes. We'll see what we, what we get through. Okay. And I may, I may skip some of these. John chapter 1 and verse 4. And I'm not going to read the references, I guess. I'll just kind of, you have them right there. Speaking of the Messiah, speaking of Jesus, in him was life. And the life was the light of men. These two verses we've just read, John 3, 15 and 16. Okay, talking about whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. You know, when, when, when you get saved, we're not just going to be alive forever. The people that are going to be in the lake of fire for all eternity, they're going to be alive forever. That's where our thinking gets mixed up and messed up. They're going to have eternal life as far as like, you know, being existent and having life in, in, in the medical sense, in the sense of, you know, being, you know, being there, not being, you know, abolished. But when we get saved, we, don't only, we not only live forever, but we have life forever. And that begins now. That's why, and we're going to see some passages here about having eternal life now, about having everlasting life now. Uh, verse, uh, ne next one, John three thirty six. He that believeth on the Son hath, present tense, everlasting life. And he that believeth not the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abideth on him. Does this make more sense now when you think about it? 
the, the, the parallel there that Moses drew in, in Deuteronomy 30 is life and death, blessing and cursing. And life was to be associated with the fullness of God's presence, being in God's presence, having that blessing. And death was to be cut off from God and, 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 and not having any connection to him whatsoever and being cursed. That was the, the, the difference. Uh, John 4, 14. Um, Jesus is talking to the woman at the well, and we'll get into this, I, I'm, I don't know, maybe in a couple of years. Um, it talks about a well of water springing up into everlasting life. Um, let's skip down here. Oh, John 5, 24, we have to do this one. Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that heareth my word and believeth on him that sent me hath, present tense, everlasting life. This is like one of the most phenomenal verses for eternal security, okay? People that believe you can lose your salvation. Um, and you might not think this, but look at this. He that believeth on him that sent me hath everlasting life, present, and shall not come into condemnation, future, okay? You have, you have salvation, you have eternal life now, hath everlasting life. In the future, you shall not come into condemnation. In the past, is passed from death unto life. So our salvation is, 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 is all-encompassing. And if you can ever lose your salvation, then Jesus just lied right here when he said you're not going to come into condemnation. Yes? Yes, absolutely. Oh, he's just saying that the, the, the reference that I gave earlier from a Catholic viewpoint, saying that the evangelicals were wrong, he needs to read this verse, he said. Uh, oh, yeah, it's, it's an amazing verse. Um, next one, as the Father hath life in himself, so he hath given the Son to have life in himself. Um, okay. Um, John 5.40, ye will not come to me that ye might have life. You see what Jesus is saying here. He's not saying you need to come to me so that I will physically heal you so that you will be physically alive and have a pulse and have a heartbeat. He's not talking about that. He's not talking about physical life. He's not talking about the medical de definition of being alive. He's talking about the, 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 the biblical definition of life. You're not, gonna, you're not coming to me. You won't come to me that you might have life, he says. Um, okay. Da -da 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 -da. Let's go down. Um, okay, this is, this is good. John 6, 30, uh, John 6, 63. It is the spirit that quickeneth, the flesh profiteth nothing. The words that I speak unto you, they are spirit and they are life. Um, God's word is, is so different from anything that we can possibly even think of, anything that man has produced. Um, okay. Um, John 10.10, 10, the thief cometh not but for to steal and to kill and to destroy. I am come that they might have life and that they might have it more abundantly. Uh, John 10, 28, I give unto them eternal life and they shall never perish, neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. Another good one for, for that. Uh, next verse, oh, incredible verse. Jesus saith unto her, I am the resurrection and the life. Okay, Jesus is life. He is the life. He's the only way that you're going to be able to obtain life. Um, verse 6 of John chapter 14, Jesus saith unto him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. Um, John uh, 20, 31, uh, believing you might have life through his name. Uh, God granted the Gentiles repentance unto life in the next one. Um, and so, so just look through these when you go home. 
Uh, Romans 8, 6, for to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Um, there's just so many applications to this. Uh, Colossians 3, 4, near the bottom, when Christ, who is our life, shall appear, then shall ye also appear with him in glory. Um, and the last couple verses that I want to share with you. Um, I want to share with you 1 John 5.12 on your last page. <clears throat> 1 John 5.12 says, He that hath the Son hath life. It's very simple, broken down. He that hath the Son hath life. And he that hath not the Son of God hath not life. And then, one last thing. Um, let's look at Revelation 20, verse 15. Whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. Now, this was just New Testament references. If you look through the Old Testament, you'll see it as well. <clears throat> um, well, I'm already there. I might as well finish verses 17 and 18 since we have it written down. For God sent not his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. Verse 18, he that believeth on him is not condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned already, because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Um, these are some things, some references you can read in Romans chapter 1, and Romans chapter 2, that parallel what's said in verse 18, being condemned already, our conscience bears witness, uh, nature bears witness, creation bears witness, we're without excuse. And then lastly, what does begotten mean? Uh, because I don't have it written here, I'll, 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 I'll fill you in. You know, only begotten Son of God. Begotten, you'll see it over and over and over and over and over in the, in the uh, genealogies in the Old Testament. You'll see so-and-so begat so-and-so. So-and-so begat so-and-so. So-and-so begat so-and-so. It's the male version of giving birth. Okay? It's the male version of when it says that so-and-so conceived and bare a son. Okay? When a woman bears a son, she's giving birth. That son or that daughter is begat or begotten of their father. And so just to kind of give you a reference to what's so special about Jesus, I mean, we're sons of God, aren't we? You know, sons and, and, and daughters of God. We're children of God by, by the new birth, being born into the family of God, being adopted into the family of God. Um, but Jesus was directly, directly begotten of the father. Um, it's incredible truth. Um, but the one verse I wanted to share with you, um, or the idea that I wanted to share with you, all the way back in the book of Genesis, there was two trees in the garden that were specifically mentioned, wasn't there? The tree of the knowledge of good and evil that we read in Genesis chapter 2, God says, don't eat of it. What was the other tree? Tree of life. What would have happened if he would have chose that tree instead, you know? But, uh, and, and, and the tree of life is supposed to be in the eternal kingdom. Um, but it, it, it doesn't have the idea of, you know, this is a tree that's going to make me alive. It's a tree that's associated with the fullness and the blessing of God's presence. And that's what we have forever in Christ. Um, any, any comments or discussion um, before we close? And we'll have to finish John chapter 3 next time. But anybody have any? Yes. Yes. 
yes, we're not going to be, uh, what's the word, annihilation. We're not going to be annihilated. Um, you know, people that believe that once you're dead, that's it, there's nothing, you know. Um, you're going to be forever somewhere, you know. Um, and so there's a, there, there's a, uh, a resurrection unto life, and then there's a resurrection unto, uh, and Daniel talks about um, contempt and sh everlasting shame and condemnation. Um, being cast into the lake of fire is the second death, but those people are still physically there for eternity. So, yes, absolutely. Okay, anybody, anybody else? Any? Okay, it's a dangerous question to ask. Well, Bob's not. Oh, he's back there. <laughs> hey, Bob. Okay, all right, well, we'll go ahead and close in a word of prayer, and, uh, and then we'll... We'll have some refreshments. Lord, there's so much that we have. Shalom. This is Mark Robinson, Executive Director of Jewish Awareness Ministries, thanking you for listening to our Bible study. These Jewish Awareness podcasts are a teaching ministry of Jewish Awareness Ministries. If you have questions about the study that you just listened to, or would like additional information, go to our website, jewishawareness.org. Email us at office at jewishawareness.org or call us at 919-275-4477. Shalom.